Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. I am Michael Johnston, and I am a host for this show. Today, I have Dr. Aaron Shapiro as a guest on the show. Dr. Shapiro is an assistant professor of technology studies at North Carolina University, Chapel Hill. Dr. Shapiro studies the role of technologies and infrastructures in social and economic life. Today, we'll be discussing Dr. Shapiro's first book, Design Control, Predict Logistical Governance in the Smart City, published by University of Minnesota Press in 2020. Welcome to the show, Dr. Shapiro. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, It's really nice to be able to talk about this book, uh, which came out during the COVID-19 pandemic. So there hasn't been too many opportunities to do so. Excellent. Well, it's a it's a joy to have you here today, and uh, and I look forward to getting in uh, in deep to this book and learning a uh, learning a lot more about it after uh, reading the book, and you know just hearing from you what inspired you to write this book and uh, uh, how you decided to hash it out into three different parts. <clears throat> so, Dr. Shapiro, what um, what brought you to writing this book? Yeah, that's a uh, a good question. I feel like. Um, after having written the book, um, it can sometimes be hard to remember why you got into the topic in the first place. Um, I guess like really like I, I locate the topic at the intersection of two interests, um, uh, you know, sort of like critical urban studies and, uh, and technology. And in my personal life, those kind of both have uh, a story. So when I finished college, um, I, I followed a couple friends down to New Orleans um, and I lived there in the city for a couple of years and I got a job working at an HIV AIDS community-based nonprofit. And what I was doing there was social, re- uh, social research with folks who were considered to be at high risk for HIV. So that's lower income African-American women, um, men who have sex with men, uh, and injection drug users. So I moved to this new city and, um, got to see this very different side of it, um, and that really got me interested in questions around urban inequity uh, and especially like the spatial dynamics of race and place. Um, and then questions, you know, kind of related to how um, you might say like um, power is expressed municipally. Um, so then I applied to grad school and I ended up moving back to Philadelphia, which is my hometown. And I was exposed to a lot of new ideas. I knew that when I started the PhD program, I'd be researching cities in some way, but um, I had never really been exposed to science and technology studies, which um, I got a lot of exposure through uh, folks like my advisor, Carolyn Marvin, who's a professor emerita now at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. And when I was uh, taking courses, she was teaching classes on communication and space. Um, and I was able to take classes with people like Lisa Mitchell, who's in the South Asia Studies Department at Penn, courses like neoliberalism in the city. Um, and then Annenberg brought in these really fantastic visiting scholars through a visiting scholars program. Uh, people like Lisa Parks, who taught classes on surveillance cultures. 
So I was exposed to all these new ideas and I began to find myself becoming um, really more interested in technology and, and the politics of technology. Um, and then thinking about cities as arenas in which techno cultures uh, can and do play out. And meanwhile, while I was in graduate school, the Snowden affair was happening. Um, Philadelphia was undergoing like rapid change, um, having to do with gentrification and development. Um, and with all that, I kind of figured that thinking about urban technologies and, and smart cities would allow me to kind of get at all these questions at once um, and in a way that, that really felt like it was fitting of the, of the time. Um, of course, like, you know, you work on a book for so long and then um, a pandemic happens and uh, things feel all of a sudden totally different. Yeah. And uh, in the, in the smart and in, in the work on the city that you did, and in fact, I think that uh, um, you know, at least brought some disaster into the book. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't COVID-19, but it was the, uh, uh, it was hurricanes, uh, uh, hurricane in New York, and, and that was the first chapter in, in your book. But before we get into that, uh, can we talk a, a bit more about what it what a smart city is? Yeah, um, the smart city is a term that companies like Siemens and Cisco and IBM um, kind of appropriated uh, in order to market themselves as urban governance consultants and infor information technology partners for municipal governments. And I'd say that they appropriated the term, these companies appropriated the term because it, it kind of has a history um, and it, smart city or smart urbanism has been used in different ways over the years. Like in the 1990s, I think the concept of smart urbanism was more closely associated with things like environmentally friendly land use policies uh, or investment strategies targeting key opportunity areas. And these other uses kind of fell by the wayside, though, when um, these sort of global tech firms shifted um, shifted in their, uh, in their business model from something like a hardware manufacturer to more of something like a consulting firm. Um, and then making new markets for themselves by sort of like reaching out to city governments and, and, um, uh, and social services agencies and sort of saying we can come in and overhaul, uh, especially um, this process sort of accelerated um, during and after the 2008 uh, global financial crisis when, when city uh, government budgets were totally um, cut and austerity was the new name of the game. And then, so like that's around 2008, um, as the, the term smart cities sort of consolidated its association with sort of various forms of urban technological intervention um, as these companies started marketing themselves as such. And then especially after um, books started coming out like Anthony Townsend's 2013 book, which is just called Smart Cities. Um, and yeah, go ahead. No, I'm saying that's I was I was I because it's that's interesting as to how how that uh, evolved and transformed into um, you know smart cities and then into research and then further advancing. Yeah, and in the book, I kind of try to acknowledge that sprawling sense of the meaning attached to the term, um, and I don't like particularly um, endorse it, but it um, I felt like part of the mission of the book was to uh, kind of flesh out what the term means, like not as, you know, some, you know, glitzy marketing strategy, but um, in the city, on the ground, people living in cities that have been undergoing these forms of urban technological intervention um, for, for years in some cases. So um, this is what uh, geographers Taylor Shelton, Matthew Zook, and Alan Wig call the actually existing smart city, the sort of on the ground situated perspective on it. Yeah. Socially and uh, technologically constructed um, because it's being infused by the people without people, the, the city would not be what it is. Yeah. So this being said, let's, let's start off with chapter, uh, chapter one uh, design. The first case that you used in this book had to do with uh, the competition that was organized in New York City to reimagine payphones. It was in response to Hurricane Sandy, I believe, and it was about uh, well, with Hurricane Sandy, a lot of the 
cell phones were not operable and a lot of the technology went down. But one of the pieces of built infrastructure that continued to work was the pay phones. Is that accurate? Yeah. Um, <laughs> New Yorkers, I think, founded, a, you know, had a newfound appreciation for um, pay phones uh, during Hurricane Sandy. Um, it became a lifeline for a lot of people. Um, the subways were down, cell phone service was out, there was no power. Um, but yet the, the pay phones were this sort of like um, resilient uh, infrastructure that allowed people to um, to coordinate with friends and family. Um, but not many pay phones were still in like good order and uh, people had to go out and search for pay phones and lines formed around the phones that, that people did find that worked. Yeah, there was varying uh, degrees of reason why they didn't work. Everything from the, the coin dispenser being gummed up because they weren't used for good anymore and uh, uh, or as often, I shouldn't say anymore at all. I'm sure people were still using them, but some of them were inoperable just as a result of of lack of use because they, they weren't front and center. Uh, in class, I could mention payphone and students would likely know what they are. But then if I asked them if they ever used them, they would probably say, no, or not very often. So that that seemed to be a, an open door project for uh, New York City to invite for profit businesses to come up come up with, or graduate students in some, in one case to come up with an idea of how they could uh, reimagine those those payphones. And, and the first one that I have uh, here is Link NYC. What was their reimagined idea for the payphones? Yeah, so Link NYC is a network uh, in New York City that re- replaced most of the city's payphones, um, and it's a, sort of like a smart city infrastructure in a classic sense of being, you know, it being a Wi-Fi network. Um, but it also uh, replaced the payphones with these sort of giant digital kiosks um, that come equipped with with a bunch of screens for ad- advertising. Um, and then a, a smaller touchscreen for users to access a bunch of city services like public transport schedules and 311. And initially, the screens were also equipped with Google Chrome, uh, the Google Chrome web browser. So anyone could really just walk up and use the internet. And that was a lot of uh, Link NYC's appeal. Um, the 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 system was uh, procured and contracted under Michael Bloomberg's regime. And as you were kind of alluding to, it was Bloomberg who, who ran this design competition to imagine future uh, reuses of the payphones um, that sort of led into Link NYC. And then when uh, de Blasio was elected, he kind of took over uh, the Link, he took over being a champion of Link NYC and sort of advertised its, its uh, utility for bridging the digital divide and sort of bringing the internet to, to all New Yorkers was his sort of mantra and how he worked it into his um, uh, his platform as as uh, mayor. But Link NYC was not the only um, call it applicant or call it uh, a group that put through their name into the uh, into the hat for this competition. Link NYC, I believe, was the winter winner of the competition. But there were also at least three others that uh, made it into your book, and those were NYC, Via, Windchime, and Digital Democracy. How did they re-envision the payphone different than Link NYC? Yeah, so the the timeline of this is sort of like, uh, okay, Hurricane Sandy happens in 2012, uh, in the fall of 2012. Um, That winter... the Bloomberg administration held this um, design competition and invited anyone um, who would be interested to submit design ideas for reinventing the payphone. And then it just sort of went silent for like a year and a half or two years. And um, some of the folks that I talked to who entered that competition, like really just didn't hear anything. The competition was um, as its organizers stressed, really this sort of informal um, non-official city procurement thing um, in, in that it was judged by people from tech companies. Um, it was really kind of just um, a showpiece for the Bloomberg administration to sort of like 
Um, as I write in the book, it's sort of like this sort of tokenistic expression of participatory design, um, allowing folks uh, to sort of like feel like they had a claim on um, the what the payphones would eventually turn into. And then it went just radio silence. A couple of years later, it was announced that the contract for the city's payphones, which was set to expire in 2014, uh, was going to this consortium of companies, a, f- a couple of which were involved in that reInvent Payphones uh, design competition. Um, but they were like boutique, um, like technology design firms partnering with, um, uh, you know, an architecture firm. A lot of the entrants that won that design, that won um, in different categories of that design competition were professional architects and technology designers. Um and so a, a few of them sort of emerged uh, from the, you know, out of the shadows after this Titan and Control Control Group um, in particular. Titan, which had managed a number of uh, New York City's payphones previously and Control Group, which was this tech design firm. Um, alongside Qualcomm, which is a really huge um, smart city infrastructure provider and a couple other companies that they had won the contract for for the new payphone uh, franchise, and it was going to be called Link NYC. And it built upon their, the, the uh, excuse me, Titan and Control Group's ideas that they had submitted to the reInvent pay, Payphones Challenge, but also kind of um, didn't look anything like it either. So that that submission to the um, to the design competition was a sort of round uh, touchscreen interface that you would step into kind of like an old fashioned phone booth, the reinvent, I'm sorry, the link NYC uh, kiosks are these like giant monoliths. So very little kind of uh, made it from that uh, design competition into the actual um, infrastructure that would emerge with the franchise contract link NYC. Uh, And not all of the, uh, the other designs, NYC Via, Winchime, and Digital Democracy, I think uh, particularly Digital Democracy was probably the most radical re-envisioned uh, idea for these uh, for these payphones. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Um, just some context. Uh, the NYC Via, Winchimes, and uh, Digital Democracy, these were um, designs submitted by uh, different people from different walks of life. Um, NYC via um, and digital democracy um, were submitted by folks who worked at like um, as coders and programmers. One person who is like a, a, t- a tech writer for a magazine. Wind Chimes was submitted by by a group of graduate students um, in New York City. Um, Wind Chimes won in one of the categories during the design competition. For my research. Um, on this sort of the prehistory of Link NYC, um, I had to kind of dig around to find who are some of the people who submitted um, entries to this competition, and I actually had to file a, a Freedom of Information Act uh, request with the City of New York to get access to um, information that they had about people who submitted to this design competition. And I tried to find as many people as I could from this. They sent me an Excel file with just names and uh, of the people on the design team and then the name of the entry. So I, I didn't have that much to work with in, in locating people unless the design team had sort of like put, uh, you know, put together a website for their design submission. And then it, that was still online. It was very difficult to find these people. I managed to track down about... Um, 10 to 15, if I recall correctly, um, 10 to 15 out of 122 entries to the design competition. And what I present in the book, NYC via Wind Chimes and Digital Democracy, are three of the most interesting of the designs submitted to this competition. Um, So there's some editorial judgment on my end. Um, But yeah, I think you're right, Michael, that um, uh, Digital Democracy is a particularly um, radical design idea and just to describe what it, what it would have looked like, um, this is like a screen, uh, I don't know, you know, like, um, like a 54 inch flat screen television turned vertically or horizontally. And the, the way that digital democracy would work is you could download an app to your phone and it would allow you to upload any digital image onto that screen, which would be on a street corner um, or installed somewhere. 
um, and they were inspired by graffiti, um, which kind of created an interesting sort of set of parameters for how this would work. So you would throw, as a user of digital democracy, you might throw your image up, which could be like a flyer for a community event or a piece of art that you made, uh, you know, a drawing that you then scanned. Um, and it would stay up on the screen until the next person came along and decided to put up an image. So it's radical in the sense that it's really like egalitarian and did not privilege any um, any particular end user over another. Um, and like graffiti, like it could be overwritten with a new tag. So yeah, I, I, I describe it in the book, I think, as guileless, um, not in a in a denigrating way, just because it's such an earnest such an earnestly community-oriented um, design idea, I found. And it's drastically moving away from the original intent of those uh, kiosks or, well, what were actually used for uh, for making phone calls instead of reimagining that as being uh, more of a marketing uh, device. Yeah, I think that um, they they saw it as more like a community bulletin board than a marketing device okay. um, or rather like, yeah, marketing, but for anyone. Okay. Um, whereas I think that link NYC is, is much more in line with the sort of corporate advertising um, uh, cultures that have sort of like, and cultures and infrastructures that um, uh, as they've taken shape on the internet, link NYC is trying to sort of like bring that, um, interactive advertising infrastructure um, in all of its pernicious sort of surveillance implications into onto city streets. Yeah. In New York city, uh, it's, I'm glad that you brought that up. New York city is not the only city that um, had, had a, uh, had similarities in terms of being a smart city. Uh, you also brought up Quayside. Uh, and I believe that was in Toronto, uh, Canada. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, happy to talk about that. And uh, yeah, how did they design their smart city different than New York City? Well, so I um, didn't study Keyside uh, or Keyside. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Um, I didn't study that um, specifically, but it while I was writing the book, um, it was in the news all the time. So. Um, this was a Keyside or Keyside. It was a plan for a mixed-use district on Toronto's lakeshore um, that one of the companies that's involved with Link NYC was running. The, that company is called Sidewalk Labs, and it's a sister company to Google. It's an alphabet company. Uh, yes. um, and Sidewalk Labs was going to build out um, this sort of like 12-acre development, um, in their words, from the internet up. So it was imagined as a sort of like um, smart district. It wasn't an entire city size, but they were going to build it from the ground up. Um, and they won a contract with the city of Toronto, um, the province of Ontario and the federal government in Canada. Um, but that project has actually been, um, totally scrapped, um, just as of, uh, March or April, 2020, that project faced a lot of well-organized community resistance, um, to a Google sister company coming in and uh, collecting data on Torontonians. Um, uh, and so in, in March or April of this past year, Sidewalk Labs um, actually decided to scrap it, citing the, economic, citing the economic uncertainty of the pandemic. But um, there's a lot of conjecture that this was actually um, due to both like the community resistance and then like a number of embarrassing resignations by people on the board who felt like they were in the dark about uh, sidewalk labs plans for uh, collecting data on, on its residents. I think this is a good time maybe to bring up in terms of smart city, what infrastructure exists in those cities and what is established as part of a smart city initiative largely has to, has to do with how they um, logistically create the, community and the flow. Um, and then depending on flow and depending on logistics, certain techniques are, are, are better fit for that community. So before we get too much deeper into this, uh, into our conversation and the other two areas of your book, can we talk a bit more about what logistics are and, and flow is? Yeah. Um, 
that's a great question. Um, uh, the this the the lens that I try to develop in the book is this notion of of um, the thing that makes smart like that is actually driving smart city is what I call logistical governance. Um, so logistics are a really central theme throughout the book, um, and I try to use the concept of logistics really expansively um, to think not just about you know when you hear the term logistics you might think of like freighters or like trucks moving on the highway, I try to think about logistics as this sort of like a uh, way of coordinating and capitalizing on flows. And in this, in the case of the smart city, urban flows of people, goods, and information. Um, so infrastructure to, in this sort of like framework, infrastructure is like any substrate that supports the flows of people, goods, or information. Um, and including the people themselves. And that's another really aspect that I try to get at. Um, and this notion of people as, as part of this infrastructure of logistical governance um, really comes up in uh, the book's second chapter, which I'm looking forward to talking about. Um, when I get into what it's like to be a worker on, an, on a sort of on-demand food delivery platform, um, it also comes up in the third chapter um, on predictive policing. Um, and so, yeah, so um, infrastructure are the substrates that support flows. And logistics, um, to me, um, I, I describe it as a technique, and logistics being the technique for capitalizing on, um, on those flows, capitalizing on, on the um, temporal and spatial dynamics of urban movement. Um, Logistics names the technical know-how and calculative architectures that um, are required um, to capitalize on efficiency gains. Yeah, and I think that may have even been part of uh, determining which was the best design for uh, New York City in their uh, urban streets, uh, making certain that uh, what was being built there in terms of new infrastructure would would match the uh, people who are navigating those streets most often and would be most beneficial for that community possibly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that, um, certainly the design of the link NYC kiosks has this, um, uh, sleek, slim profile, um, that allows for maximal movement on, you know, New York city, uh, sidewalk is a very busy place, so you can't yes. take up too much room. Um, and the politics of street furniture on New York City's streets are, um, that's a world unto itself. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yes, a couple of years at a conference, I was there for Triple uh, SP and Society for the Study of Social Problems, and uh, we were in Manhattan. So those, yes, the streets were uh, rather busy that those days. <laughs> uh, but let's go ahead and get into... Uh, your chapter on control, and this is the chapter that you focused on uh, uh, bicycle couriers and uh, particularly how they move throughout the city uh, based on a couple different apps. The uh, one that you focused on most was an app, I think, that was called Caviar. And uh, there was, so you, you made it reference to what was called an Uber city. So I, I said, okay, well, what is, if, if this is what an Uber city is, what is a caviar city? <laughs> uh, yeah, I. Ca so caviar um, is a a food delivery platform, a third party food delivery platform that was, uh, I think, in twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen, uh, acquired by DoorDash. When I conducted the research, it was owned by the technology company Square, which is most probably, uh, which is probably best known for it. Squarespace, which is its um, website platform and like Square Pay uh, systems. Yes. 
Uh, caviar caters to foodies. It's supposed to be the platform or app that if you if you care about the quality of your food and you need to do takeout, you're using caviar. So it has this sort of upscale connotation. They kind of tried to make their name early on by hiring professional photographers to present the most beautiful photos of uh, of food. I think nowadays the market for third-party delivery platforms is extremely crowded and competitive. And I don't know if they really uh, stand out as much as um, they'd like. And that's part and parcel of this sort of its acquisition by DoorDash, this sort of consolidation that's going on in the market right now. Uh, what's a caviar city? A caviar city is any city, you know, at the height of the, the COVID-19 um, stay-at-home orders. Um but yeah, I start. I start the chapter. I, it's sort of a, a, a funny question, Michael, because I start the chapter with um, this sort of uh, incursion into the into the platform imaginary, or at least that's how I'd like to think of it. Um, with this essay by Carlo Rotti and Matthew Claudel, that's uh, titled "In the Uber or Life in the Uber City," um, and they sort of present this sort of utopian scenario for urban governance um, that emphasizes the need for deregulation. Um, uh, in order for innovation to flourish, they argue, you can't have, uh, in order for innovation to flourish, they argue that like governance need to, governments need to steer clear from the temptation to play a more deterministic and top-down role. Um, and so, yeah, it's sort of this fantasy city of like, um, I, in the book, I sort of, um, play on this, um, the Uber, the app and the Ubermensch, uh, protagonists of Ayn Rand's novels and thinking about this sort of like, um, uh, heroic, innovative, creative, uh, you know, thinker who, if only didn't have to deal with the drudgery of bureaucracy could invent the new best app, um, uh, and I, I think it's a it, it's a fallacy, it's a fantasy, um, because platforms like Uber that they kind of, that the authors of the essay um, are invoking to to make their argument their anti regulatory argument, um, these platforms um, uh, are not profitable and they're not beneficial to the cities where they operate. Um, these kinds of platforms, um, a number of which sort of modeled themselves on Uber in one way or the other. And if you, if you can recall sort of like uh, five, six years ago, um, Uber for X was a very common sort of like bad, you know, punchline. There's an app for that, right? Um, these, all these various platforms, um, few of them are, very few of them are profitable. Many of them engage in, de- in deceptive practices, both with consumers and end users and with workers. Um, and most of them are more regressive than innovative in terms of how they manage the service providers or workers on these platforms. Yeah, they develop themselves as somewhat of a of a utopia. But uh, you mentioned several of the drawbacks uh, of the way in which the workers are uh, are treated, and and then from uh, workers and the and the work that they're doing to maybe then even. Uh, fall down to the users who are being provided for from these apps as a result of uh, uh, of selective delivery for, in order for the workers who, of course, are trying to profit as much as they're able to uh, by doing the work that they're doing. Well, I think this sort of um, unstated thing in that life in the Uber City essay that I was just talking about is that regulation, the way that regulation would... would um, would take shape would be to gov- to regulate how workers on these platforms are classified. Um, and this classification question, how workers are classified on a platform like Uber or Caviar um, is really important um, uh, because it, it both like uh, saves the platforms tons and tons of money um, by, um, allowing them to avoid the costs of, of a traditional employment model. Um, yeah. So it's really important that these workers um, 
are designated as independent contractors uh, for the platforms in terms of like their 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 own sort of like calculations on um, and 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 bottom line, but it also creates a number of challenges for these firms. Um, and what I try to do in the chapter is really like think about how these companies are trying to manage this the trade offs. Um, how they're walking this sort of like tightrope between like on the one hand, they need their workers to be uh, independent contractors to save on that money. That's like their primary like business model. On the other hand, they need their workers to be employees all but in name in that they need to coordinate their workers to be an effective and efficient fleet to deliver services um, effectively. And it's that that tension and trade-offs that I, I really focus on here. Um, in the chapter. Uh, so like, yeah, happy to talk about how that creates uh, pernicious conditions for the workers. Yeah. And uh, with this uh, I, idea of a flexible economy, there are some contingencies that you mentioned that are associated with this type of labor. There's this belief that the, that the uh, workers are able to choose their own hours or they don't have to ask t- for time off from their boss and more, although that's somewhat of a smoking mirror environment, uh, because there there is some level of control that it, it's that negotiation that you were mentioning, tight roping between having contract workers who don't cost the uh, employer uh, things like uh, overhead, or which would which would uh, be considered as. Uh, uh, healthcare uh, liabilities that are associated with maybe uh, you know a bicycle getting ran into by a car. There were some of those examples in in the chapter, but uh, yeah, what are some of the other ways in which the uh, platform these platforms control their workers, but then also uh, also give them some flexibility? Yeah, so uh, one of the most important. Uh, you know, just logistically, one of the most logistically important ways uh, this creates a set of problems for the platforms that they try to overcome is that if their workers are independent contractors, they can't tell the workers where to work or when to work. And so they have all these tricks up their sleeve to try to uh, manipulate workers into into doing what the platform wants them to do to manage them, right? Sort of like uh, management that's not management. Um. Uh, so yeah, these sort of like logistical um, techniques that the companies use to to sway and persuade their workers to uh, log on and off um, become really complicated. And I get into a few of them. Um, get into a few of them in the chapter. But one, as one example, this this idea of the the uh, the bat signal at Caviar uh, at Caviar they called. Um, this intervention that a, a, a human manager might do. Um, say it's uh, okay. Say it's lunch on Thursday, and uh, Caviar has uh, you know however many couriers already logged onto the app out there in the city delivering lunches. Uh, all of a sudden, it starts pouring rain, and the order volume jumps up really quickly. So there's a human manager somewhere. Uh, whether it's in the local office or in the national office in at their headquarters in San Francisco, who then sends out what they call the bat signal. This is a, a message that goes out to every courier, regardless of their it, whether they're logged on. If you have the app downloaded on your phone, you get a notification saying, more couriers needed, jump on now to earn big bucks or something. So if you uh, decide to heed the call and you log on, uh, that means gearing up for this rainstorm that's happening, throwing on all this gear, grabbing your big thermal backpack that you're supposed to wear when you're running these deliveries, um, and you get a ping on your phone and you go to the restaurant to pick up the order, um, and then you deliver it to an office building that's you know, five, six miles from your house. Then you're sitting around waiting for the next order to come in because it's busy and it's raining, but now by now it's 2.15 and the lunch rush is over, and you're just wet and five or six miles from your house, uh, and you've helped the company out, but there's nothing in it for you, and you just decide to log off and go home. So that kind of thing, that sounds like small like small beans. Like that's not really 
a big deal. But if you think about it from the other end as well, if you are a worker who was already logged on during that lunch shift uh, and you were already getting orders and you're, you're busy, when they send out the bat signal, now there's a hundred more couriers out there running deliveries and the demand uh, gets diluted as one uh, courier told me. Um, and then, you know, you've self-scheduled for this block of time and all of a sudden you're not getting any more, any more orders because there's a hundred more couriers out there uh, than there were before they sent out the bat signal. So this is one of those techniques that the company uses to sort of like manage their workforce without technically managing them. Um, and I make, I try to make the case that um, it really does resemble uh, an employer employee type relationship much more than an independent contractor type relationship. Because the employee has to decide whether or not it's either, you know, making beans or not making anything at all. Right. And does the employee ever have a chance to, you know, fight back or what I called the question soldier as a way to, you know, get back or at least to have the greatest advantage in the contract work that they are doing? You know, it's kind of like a cat and mouse game. Like the company will implement some new policy and workers try to uh, game it or, um, or, or do some sort of, uh, resistance tactic. And the company eventually, through the data that they have uh, monopoly access to, will kind of figure out what's going on and then tweak it and um, do things as extreme as sending out misinformation. Because if they come to believe that workers, you know, say it's um, uh, Uber drivers in this case, that uh, if Uber drivers see that there's like a lot of activity in this one area and they've learned that it's not a good idea to go there, um, because every other Uber driver is going to go there, um, then the company might start using that um, that tendency, that tactic against the workers by misrepresenting where the demand actually is. And this actually has um, effects for the customer as well, because if, you, if you're a customer in an area that the platform is doing this to, um, the tactic is called demand throttling, uh, then prices spike for you. Um, I don't have any direct evidence that this is a strategy that companies use. Part of the research for this chapter was to dig into the management science literature, which reads like a, uh, a manual for how to exploit workers. A lot of this work that's coming out in journals like management science um, and op- operations research um, is basically building out um, uh, an algorithmic system that a company like Uber, Uber could very easily just implement um, to mislead workers and customers. Another technique that I think uh, you brought up in this chapter uh, had to do with the bicycle couriers using alleyways as a shortcut to get to where they need to go in order to reduce time, uh, time from pickup to delivery in order to increase the output that they're able to provide. Is that another technique? Yeah, there's a lot of hustling, especially among the bike couriers, um, that I interviewed. Um, I should also say that I spent 15 months working as a courier. So I have, I got a lot of experience under my belt. I got to know those back alleys. Um, uh, And sometimes they were really like uh, a lifesaver, especially in the downtown business districts where you're doing, if you're working um, a lunch shift during the week, a lot of the activity was in the downtown business district, as you can imagine. and in Philadelphia, where I was doing the research, it's a lot of one-way, uh, single or double-lane roads. So it's not really easy to get around, especially if there's any bit of traffic. Um, and so you're on your bike, you try to make use of the total landscape. Um, it's not uncommon for workers to go the wrong way down the street in between cars, to ride on sidewalks, to take alleyways. Um, there's a whole lot of, uh, of, of bike courier uh, um Bike courier, like, uh, brag, what's the word? Like braggadocio, um, oh, yes. <laughs> that, uh, that is part of the culture as well. Yeah. Developing a reputation through, uh, yeah. By how well you're able to navigate the city. Yeah. And really just, um, uh, trying to squeeze as many deliveries as you can per hour. Um, and related to that, I talk about this in the chapter as well. Like, 
when you're when you're in that mode of trying to hustle um, and trying to get as many orders in as you possibly can, you start to realize uh, there's a number of things that are just part of the like what it's like to move through a city that create barriers to your next order. Things like um, every apartment building that you're delivering to have a, having a different policy for delivering food, for example, that came up a lot. Some places required that you had printed out a guest pass that you would wear as a sticker. Some places required that you take a service elevator and no, you can't walk through the lobby. You have to go around the building to the back entrance. So there's a lot of, of, of things like that, that sort of um, were sent, you know, front and center on my mind as I was trying to run these deliveries. And then worrying about whether or not the algorithm is set up by denying these, will you get another order immediately or will you have to wait if you, uh, if you reject too many orders? Right. A lot of uncertainty as well. Yes. So then you move into prediction, which is the third component of the smart city. In prediction, uh, you focus on police technology, uh, particularly, um, police technology that helps in predicting where crime occurs. And the uh, as you enter the chapter, the first thing that you bring up is about uh, police incidents that occur and how, uh, how that correlates with the sales of, uh, of technology. It, it almost seems as if that's a, uh, an instant response when a police-related incident occurs that is a police uh, police and uh, citizen, uh, civilian, excuse me, civilian incident where a civilian is shot. And then all of a sudden, uh, a the police precinct tends to focus on the purchase of technology, and that's the, the next step, Correct. Yeah, I, I try to think about um, uh, the police tech sector and its relationship to uh, the crisis in policing that we're um, uh, that is you know front and center in national conversation right now. Um, especially, I'm sorry, I should say um, the crisis in policing that is caused by police use of force and violence um, and unwarranted stop search and seizures uh, targeting, in particular, communities of color. Um, and when these um, incidents of violence happen, w- when police murder, frankly, when police murder someone, um, there's this sort of sequence that's now being routinized where, you know, the police uh, face a legitimacy crisis and, um, and to save face, uh, in order to demonstrate that they're affecting meaningful reforms, they'll turn to uh, a private company and then purchase some new technology, whether it's body cams or dash cams, um, smart gun holsters are a thing, uh, sort of like a, you can imagine like a a holster that has a sensor. So it sort of, um, records every time the police officer goes for his weapon and, and then also crime forecasting algorithms, which is what I focus on, um, in this chapter. And there's every big city in the United States has been experimenting with these crime prediction algorithms, um, and especially those that have had, that have undergone like a a legitimacy uh, crisis in recent years. A big example is Chicago and the uh, Mayor Rahm Emanuel's effort to cover up the shooting of Laquan McDonald and their contracts with um, uh, predictive policing platforms. New York City is another, Philadelphia is another, LAPD is another. Yeah, and and while... uh... It makes sense. It uh, it's predictable. Let's just use that. It's predictable that uh, the agency would try to reduce the amount of uh, uh, the amount of consequences, the uh, the magnitude of blowback that would happen as a result of the incident taking place. This isn't the best of solutions. What are some of the problems or limitations that are associated with these technologies that uh, different precincts are looking at? Yeah, well, so I think each of the sort of like police tech solutions are going to have their own sets of problems and limitations. Um, So, but thinking about predictive policing in particular, um, um, 
I, I wanted to, to so the, the most obvious limitation or problem that a predictive policing uh, solution would run into is this, the, the way that they work is that you train an algorithm on crime data to then predict where future crimes, when and where future crimes will take place. Because crime data is uh, managed by police officers, police departments, police agencies, uh, the concern it would be that the algorithms will um, reinforce or exacerbate um, the discriminatory practices that are sort of routinized in police patrols. Uh, people have referred to this as runaway feedback loops, others as ratchet effects. So the idea being that when you when you automate where patrols are going, it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy that police will continue going to the poorest you know, areas to the highest minority communities. Yeah, it's circular reasoning. It's just continuing to uh, a never-ending cycle of the the data that's available, uh, where it might be uh, more, where it might be more effective is looking at at, at social work as so, at social work and the effectiveness of that and how it relates then to to policing. Although, if policing has bled into social work or social work has bled into policing then even that isn't going to be effective. It's going to go right back into uh, a, a, a dangerous cycle. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think what, what was interesting, um, I was able to, to conduct field work with a predictive policing company. Um, and what was interesting about them is that they were aware, of course, they were aware of this problem and they wanted to present themselves as the sort of ethical alternative to um, to other police tech vendors, um, they wanted to be more sophisticated. They wanted to uh, acknowledge that predictive, like the ills of policing, and then therefore they positioned their product as this really like sophisticated reform tool that um, that their product wouldn't do that runaway feedback loop thing. And they came up with a number of technical fixes to try to avoid that, um, but. Uh, in the chapter, I kind of go into great detail, and maybe you can you can tell me if I went in too much detail. But um, these the the predictive policing vendors that I was studying with um, uh, identified a problem with this system, with the pr- crime prediction system that I haven't come across uh, anywhere else, and I don't know if any of their competitors are even thinking about this. Which is once you start using a predictive algorithm, once you start using an algorithm that's trained on data to allocate where your police will patrol, um, you can never know how accurate the algorithm is any anymore, uh, once you start using it, that is. Um, and I call this predictive policing's indeterminacy. Um, and what I mean by that is that, um, okay, so uh, before you start using the algorithm, if you're a police department, before you start using it to direct where your patrols are going to be, you can use the algorithm to make crime predictions and then compare that to where crime happens. And that way you could say, okay, we made um, 80 predictions, 80 crime predictions, and 68 of them came true, uh, 12 didn't. So then you can go back to the drawing board and kind of tweak things and try to make, try to increase its predictive accuracy. But once you start directing the algorithm, sorry, once you, once you start using the algorithm to direct where the patrols go, um, you can't do that measurement anymore. You can't measure accuracy anymore. Um, because if you put an officer in a in a predicted crime location, one of two things is going to happen. Either the crime is going to happen there or it's not. Um, the trouble is, if say a crime happens, if a crime takes place uh, and you have an officer in the grid cell at the right time and place, is that truly the, the crime that was predicted by the algorithm? Or was that just something that the officer saw because he or she was there. So this, this sort of like increased probability that a crime will be detected um, and it's inverse, an increased uh, probability that a crime will be deterred or prevented uh, really confound this measurement apparatus that's at the root of the, the prediction, of the crime predictions. If, a, if an officer is there and a crime doesn't happen, was that crime not happening because the officer was there and they prevented it from happening or was the algorithm wrong? You can't, you can't know. And that's what I mean by this indeterminacy. Um, and that gets baked in at multiple levels of the, 
of the platform that um, uh, the broader software package that this crime prediction algorithm is embedded in. And it's sort of like, it's used to scaffold all these different experimental um, systems that um, the vendor saw as part of its reform reformist um, technology. So it's, it sounds like an obscure epistemological problem. Like how can you know if a crime is prevented because of a police intervention? Um, but it's more profound than that because what it leads to is, or what it requires is faith in the algorithm. If you can no longer know how accurate it is, all you're doing is just trusting in this system. Um, and that can be used in really dangerous ways, ways that justify police interventions rather than alternatives. Um, and so really like, it is at root a reform effort. It doesn't change much. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, certain certain neighborhoods receive the label of dangerous neighborhood. And police pick up on that uh, because police are people also and oftentimes from, you know, an adjacent neighborhood uh, not too far down the road coming into those neighborhoods that already have a reputation, which by in itself could create a self-fulfilling prophecy that is calling it a dangerous neighborhood and resulting in police seeing crime that may be there, but may not be as, as serious as how they handle it. Yeah. That's um, something that I get into a little bit is that um, when we think about algorithms, right? Crime prediction algorithms, uh, predictive policing is only the latest version of that. We have non-automated algorithmic type thinking, um, including just like the uh, our own personal ev- evaluations of the safety of a place, but also more rudimentary systems that police departments have been using for decades, like hotspot policing, which is not very different from predictive policing other than the scale at which a neighborhood is targeted. With hotspot policing, a police department might say, okay, it's this you know three block area rather than a 500 square foot grid cell, which is the case for the predictive policing technologies. Um, yeah, that, and that comes into with professionalization of policing or uh, the standards that are associated with uh, the non-smart technology that is uh, the training that is part of becoming an officer. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I think that, so that, that sort of um, process that I was describing a couple minutes ago of this like crisis, policing crisis and turn to technology as a solution to solve the the. Uh, the problems in police because you can more rationally uh, allocate patrol resources um, is another, you know, it's a, it's a false faith in the technology and it's a misrecognition of the problems that are actually going on in police departments. So that leads us to uh, the, the final question of, of this part of the chapter and, and that is faith and that's buy-in and having the necessary buy-in in order for the technology to create, technology to create change uh, in the police force. Is it possible to change the way that police act in the line of duty and to allow technology to take the wheel? I don't think so. And uh, I'm not the only one to find this. Um, Sarah Brain's work has demonstrated uh, that uh, um, police officers in, at least in the Los Angeles police department are, uh, likely to just ignore what, what the algorithm is telling them to do or where it's telling them to go. Um, yeah. I, the, the, the discussion of buy-in that you mentioned, um, this was something that was really became a core preoccupation of the, of the technology producers that I was studying with. Uh, they, they were, tra- they were trying to get into the psychology of a police officer um, I think they see the tool predictive policing as an augmenting, you know, an augmenting tool. Uh, certainly not a replacement by any means. Um, so yeah, and when they became uh, sort of preoccupied with this notion of buy-in, um, it led to strange places and to sort of like very uh, loose, let's say loose, um, uh, playing fast and loose with certain sort of like aspects of this whole thing. So, um, for example, one of the things that this company did 
to mitigate the potential for those runaway feedback loops, the, the vicious cycle thing that we were talking about, one of the things they did to mitigate that was to introduce randomization into the, um, into the crime prediction uh, and site selection process. So what this does is instead of sending the officers to the first, second, third, fourth, most ris- risky places, it might send them to the 12th, 13th, 14th, or 15th most risky places according to their algorithmic outputs. Uh, they did not want police officers to know about that um, because that would sort of like um, uh, you know undermine uh, some of the the halo of efficacy that they wanted um, officers to to have to buy into the system. And then interestingly, when they brought in police officers to consult on on their project, uh, one of the things that the police officers stressed was that in order for them to buy into the system, they needed it to help them make arrests. Of course, that's what a police officer is going to say. And that runs entirely antithetical to the, the sort of like reformist ethos that the technology producers were having and to the, to the crisis of policing and the, and the, um, and the public uh, critique of, of police power right now. Uh, th- this like arbitrary, we just want to make more arrests is cert- is the antithesis of uh, the public sentiment as of uh, April 2021. <laughs> yeah, because it sounds more like responsive policing than preventative policing, suggesting that uh, police in the position that they're in, crime is inevitable and arrest is necessary. And uh, yes, and arrest is pleasurable and for them and that it is... Uh, uh, you know, the thing that they do. So it leaves the, it, it leaves your platform wide open for your next study in, in three different areas of, of the smart city, uh, prediction, design, and control. And, and, uh, and there's plenty more research to be done. Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are out of time, but I, I do have one question, uh, one question, yearning question uh, that I need to ask. You're, you're working on a second book, is is that right? Very early stages, yeah. And it's about the relationship between the financialization of everyday life and the ways that human engage with and adopt new technologies? It is. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Yeah, to- where, where are you going with this this book? And, and I, you know, it's early stages, so... Uh, I'm guessing like maybe a year out or maybe a little bit more, uh, but c- could you give us uh, maybe some early details of, of what you have planned for this book? Yeah. Um, perhaps, uh, perhaps it's inspired by, uh, you know, the, the experience of this past year and, and um, living through this pandemic Um but uh, some of my research interests have shifted more towards political economic questions around financialization uh, and, and its relationship. And what I'm interested in is um, the relationship between this lofty idea that we have around of finance as this sort of like imaginary cloud floating over the real economy to how it actually is grounded in, in everyday practices um, and everyday media practices. And the connection that I'm going to explore here is this um, rise of the subscription economy and subscription as this um, subscriptions as recurring revenue from the perspective of a firm and firms desire to create um, reliable and long lasting revenue streams. Um, and there's a lot going on right now um, in the fintech space um, to uh, create new financial products built off of things like uh, streaming subscriptions and uh, software as a service subscriptions, things like Dropbox, to which we dutifully cough up $10 a month, um, are being enrolled in new ways into uh, uh, the financial uh, apparatus. And so that's what I'm going to explore. Yeah, you know, I enjoy my subscriptions as much as the next person, Netflix or YouTube television or Disney Plus and 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 you know it's it's almost as if the money just uh, spontaneously disappears every month without uh, without any contact to to my cell phone or 
anything like that, but it, it'll be interesting to to see the research that you um, are doing with these different subscription pack, packages and how it impacts the everyday life of humans uh, in the United States. Yeah, thank you. Um, I look forward to uh, to learning uh, all about this, you know, new frontier of. Um, there's one. There's one guy, a business writer, who writes about this, who refers to the sub- subscriber as the automatic customer. Right? It's not just that money is automatically deducted from our bank accounts every month to pay for this subscription, but that as customers, uh, we are automatically loyal to these companies to which we subscribe with regular payments. Excellent. I look forward to talking to you soon once that uh, once your book is published. And uh, thank you again, Dr. Shapiro, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. Again, this is New Books in Sociology. I am Michael Johnston. And uh, New Books in Sociology is, again, a, a channel on the New Books Network. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.